to us this morning certainly needs no introduction for most of you, whether you know him through his sermons on YouTube, the Bible study that he conducts weekly there out of Dallas, Texas in Herb's Coffee House, uh, or his books, or any other number of ways. Dr. Steve Lawson is a friend to all who love the Word of God. He is God's gift to us, and I am thankful that he's with us this morning. Thankful for the friendship he has extended to me over the last number of years. I first met him in 2006, and he has been a benediction to my life ever since. So, Dr. Lawson, thank you for coming to West Texas again. Come and bring God's word to us this morning. Much thank you. Well, what a joy it is to be here with you. I've had this on my calendar for some time, and to think that this is the 20th anniversary of the founding of this church is a remarkable milestone. Uh, I can only imagine what it was like when the church started. Was it your living room? Your living room, Brian? Maybe in a closet? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) And to see how God has added and increased and and grown this church is such an encouragement to, to my own heart. And I can... I can only imagine the joy. I felt your father holding back tears when he was making a few comments. Uh, To see it have reached this proportion is such a a testimony, really, of God's faithfulness uh, to this church. And so this is a day for us to celebrate. This is really a day for us to rise up and bless the name of God that he has led, he has guided, he has provided, He has supported, he has saved, he has sanctified, Uh, he has done all of this over these 20 years. And many of you may be much newer to the church and probably are, and it's good for us to step back and just have a sense of perspective of where we are and what God has done. And uh, your pastor, Brian Fairchild, is, was really one of our top students at the Master's Seminary, graduating from the Doctor of Ministry program. He immediately distinguished himself. Uh, if for no other reason, he has the best-looking ties on campus. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I was immediately drawn to such a sharp man as this. But uh, his love for the Lord, his knowledge of the Bible his savvy with theology and sound doctrine, uh, plus his pastor's heart um, has really marked him and marked this church. And I know that uh, a church is really all the people, but nevertheless, there always has to be a faithful servant who opens the Word of God and brings it, and you are greatly blessed to have one of God's most choicest servants and your pastor. So, it's difficult for me to know what to preach on an occasion like this, and um, I've gone back and forth and back and forth and have actually written a couple of sermons, so I could bring one of them on the 30th anniversary and the other on the 40th. If you live that long, I will. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I just want to encourage you today. I, I have no agenda. I have no, I'm not addressing anything that's broken that needs to be fixed. Um, this church is humming on all cylinders. I, I just want to pour gas on your fire. 
Uh, I just want to put pep in your step and glide in your stride. <laughs> uh, so, if you would take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And the title of this message is, What Every Church Should Be. And I want to set before you, really, um, the pattern, the profile of the one church that the Apostle Paul addressed that nothing needed to be fixed, okay? This is the second epistle that Paul wrote out of 13 epistles. The first that he wrote was to the Galatians, and he came down hard on the Galatians. And he basically said, I'm not thankful for you because of their abandonment of the gospel. This is the second epistle that Paul wrote, and it's the complete opposite. Rather than coming down hard on this church, he really praises them and encourages them simply to excel still more. And that would be the encouragement that I would want to bring to you today. Just excel still more in what you're doing. It's working. God is at work. So I want to begin by reading the passage, 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 1. My intent is to look at the entire chapter. The Word of God reads, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you yourselves know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. In these verses, we see the profile of what every church should be. This church in Thessalonica was not a perfect church. It had its flaws like, like every church. But it was a model church that excelled in so many ways. In fact, Paul says he has no correction of this church. 
It's the only church that he addresses this way. So what do we need to know by way of background so that this passage will really stand out to us? Well, we need to know that the Apostle Paul first went to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. As was his custom, he went into the Jewish synagogue. He preached the gospel. He wasn't preaching to the choir when he went into, the, into that synagogue. And he preached the gospel, and many Jews were saved. Also, many Gentiles were saved as he ministered among the, in the city. And he created such an uproar that Paul was suddenly evicted from the city. And so the new believers were left to start their own church by themselves. They didn't have a pastor. They didn't have uh, Paul there. They just had to gather together and draw from Paul's teaching that he had given to them really how to put this church into place. Paul goes down the road. He goes to Berea. He goes to, to Athens. And when he's in Athens, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the believers. What happened after I left town? And Timothy comes back to Thessalonica, and he sees this church firing on all cylinders. This church is humming. Paul moves on to Corinth, and Timothy meets him in Corinth and brings the report, this church is thriving. This church is doing tremendous and so from Corinth, Paul writes the book of 1 Thessalonians. He's on his second missionary journey and has this letter delivered to the church and basically says to them, I, I have nothing to say to you to correct. All I can say to you is just keep on doing what you're doing. And so in this first chapter, we really see the uh, the, the seedbed of really what made them such a remarkable church. And I think it would be good for us on this historic occasion of the 20th anniversary of Colonial Bible Church to just anchor ourselves to this cornerstone and be reminded of what a model church should be. Not a perfect church, but a model church. And for you to give thought to really... What a blessing it is for you to be in a church like this. I, I literally travel all over the country. I travel around the world. I constantly, every city that I go to, there's not a city that I go to that I don't hear this. We have to drive miles and miles and miles and miles to find this church. I mean, people are driving past 30, 40, 50 churches to get to finally a church that preaches the Bible. What a blessing for you that as you live here in Midland, Texas, that you're not having to drive to Houston. You're not having to drive to Dallas to hear me. <laughs> that was a joke, okay? <laughs> You've got it right here in your backyard. I mean, God has airdropped this right here in Midland, Texas. And so I want you to be encouraged that you are in a garden spot. You are in a place where the Word of God is handled with excellence and care, where there are genuine believers around you. You're in a place where you're not playing church. 
that 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 you are in a healthy body of Christ. And if this isn't your church home, I, something may be wrong with you, okay? You need to make this your church home because this is where God comes to church Sunday by Sunday. So let's walk through this passage and, and these the highlights of this. I've got six distinguishing marks of this church that to which I want to draw your attention. And the first thing that I want you to know, it's in verse 1, is that concerning this church, they are a saved people. They are a saved people, and this is where every model church must start. It is with a gathering of people who have been born again, who have been converted to Christ, who are under the blood of Christ, and, and who know the Lord, this church was not a social, uh, a spiritual country club. Uh, th- this was a church where Jesus Christ lived in the hearts of the people who gathered. So look at verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. That's Paul's missionary team on his second missionary journey. Paul is the writer of this. And please note, he writes to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, what should leap off the page to us? is this is not the church in Thessalonica. Rather, Paul is careful to write this. This is the church of the Thessalonians because the location doesn't make the church. The building does not make the church. What is the church is the people. And so as he writes this, he, he doesn't write it to the church in this city as though that's the identity of this church. No, it's the people who are the Thessalonians, and this church uh, is, is comprised of believers, note, in God the Father. Do you see that, in God the Father? That designates them as saved. You can be in church and not be saved, right? So Paul stresses the fact that they are in God the Father. They are living in God. They are rooted in God. They are positioned in God. They are in vital, saving relationship with God. That's what makes this a real church. And then he adds, and the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can know the Father except they know the Son the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the believers in this church, the members in this church, for the most part, are in God the Father, and they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the first mark of a true church. They are in God the Father, and they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are real people with a real saving faith in Christ. It's been my experience, sad to say, this isn't always the case. As soon as I graduated from seminary back in 1980, the first church that I went to was a large Southern Baptist church. We had three morning services that were packed out. It was on television. Um, I was the college pastor, and the pastor gave me opportunity to preach every Wednesday night. I preached uh, every fourth Sunday. 
And as I preached the Word of God, a strange thing happened. Church members started being saved. Church members started being baptized. Church members came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and interestingly enough, one of them was the daughter of the pastor who had been there about 25 years. And I remember him calling me into his office and telling me, having kind of a a talk-down visit. He's the senior pastor. I'm the college minister. And he said, I've spent 25 years of my life getting these people saved. You're here in one year, and you've gotten them lost. Well, you have to be lost before you can be saved. And they came under the conviction of their sin, that they have simply been going through the outward motions of religiosity, going through the outward motions of just being in church, but has never come to surrender their life to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords, and one by one by one, almost like popcorn, just spontaneously popping and going off, people were being saved Sunday, Wednesday, Friday, and those church members finally became the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I left that church. I went to pastor a Bible church. Bible was our middle name. You would think everyone in the building was converted and saved. I still had the charter members there, and I began to preach the Word of God, and people began to be saved on a constant, continual basis. It totally changed the complexion of the church now to have saved people who are excited for the Lord in church. I left that church and pastored another large Southern Baptist church, a very large Southern Baptist church. And I went in there rather naively and just began to preach the Word of God uh, as best I could, but as straightforward and direct as I could. And in one year, just one year of my pastorate there, 100 people who were church members were converted to Christ. All adults, not children. That's a lot of adults to be converted in one year. And it was glorious. And people were leaving the church. People were going to heaven and joining the church. And I remember one man saying to me, Pastor, ever since you've come here, people are either going or coming. Well, the Word of God sorts it out. And the Word of God sorts out the wheat from the tares. And the Word of God sorts out those who are true believers from those who are just caught up and just going to church. Why? They don't know. So, this church is, a, is comprised of saved people. It's a real church. They are in God the Father, and they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And before I go any further, I I need to ask you this question. Let me be just very personal with you. I see that you're in church today. Are you in God? Are you in Christ? And is Christ in you? And there's only one way for you to be in Christ, and that is for you to come to a fork in the road, for you to come to a defining moment in your life, when you repent of your sins and you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you embrace Him as Lord and Savior. If you are one of those here today who are 
in church, but not yet in Christ. May God give you ears to hear. May He awaken you this very moment. And for you to come to that realization, how desperate you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But let's continue to walk through this. Not only were they a saved people, they were serving people. They were in reality saved to serve. So look at verse 2. Paul writes, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Let me just pause there for a moment. Please note he doesn't give thanks to them. He gives thanks to God because he realizes that God is the author of their salvation. And he realizes that God is the architect of their sanctification. So he gives thanks to the source of the, of the grace of God in their life. He, gives, he says we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And now in verse 3, he highlights the, the three distinguishing marks in a Christian's life that distinguishes them in, in Paul's epistles as a true believer. And it's faith, hope, and love. The reality of faith, the reality of love, and the reality of hope in, in their lives. And so please note, he says in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind, number one, your work of faith. What that means is the work that is produced by your faith. You have a true, living, abiding faith in Jesus Christ, and all true faith is a working faith. You're not saved by your works, but you are saved to work. And if you have true faith that has laid hold of Jesus Christ, and you are now in union and communion with Jesus Christ, it will produce a dynamic in your life. You will be working for the Lord. I met this young man earlier today. He was making coffee back here. If I got it right, yeah. And your pastor calls him the deacon of the bean. The deacon of the bean. I like that. <laughs> I said, I need one of you in my church back in, back in Dallas. But when you're saved, you find a place to work. When you're saved, you put your shoulder to the plow. You get in the field. You, you begin to, to, to serve the kingdom of God. If you're truly saved, you can never just sit on the bench. If you're truly saved, you, can't be, you cannot be just a spectator in the church and just watch everybody else do all the work. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior... It puts such a, a, a dynamic in you that you have to serve the Lord. And so that's what this says, your work of faith. Then, he says, labor of love. Do you see that? Do you see that? Hello? Okay, I see a head nod. Okay. It was some, from someone going to sleep, though, the head nodding. Okay, labor of love, this is the labor that is produced by your love. All genuine, true love produces labor. True love is never selfish. 
True love is never stagnant. True love is never stationary. True love sacrificially gives of itself to seek the highest good in another. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. True love is, is, is not taking. True love is giving. You, you have to, to give if you love. And here the love is for God. The love is for Jesus Christ. And if you have this, this, this vertical love for God, there will be horizontal labor of love to serve. Now, this word labor, which I hope you see in your Bible, is a Greek word that means to, to labor to the point of exhaustion. It, it, it means to toil to the point of weariness. That you have no more, you have no energy left in you. That you, you've left it all on the field. That, that, that you're not looking for just an easy place of ministry. But that you are giving and giving and giving and giving. And you are laboring to the point I have no energy left to give. And it's this way until you die and go to heaven. And sometimes with older folks, I'm 71 years old now, okay, so I'm preaching to the choir on this myself. You may retire from your job, but let me tell you something, you'll never retire from the Lord Jesus Christ. And as long as you are breathing on this planet, I don't care how old you are, your service is needed for the cause of Christ, and there is a a place for you to serve and you desperately need to serve as much as the church needs for you to serve. So, labor of love, because love for God always produces labor. And then, steadfastness of hope. And what this means is, the steadfastness in serving the Lord that is produced by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word hope, means a confident assurance of the future. Being, being persuaded of this very thing, that he who began a good work and you shall perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ, that you have a certainty about your future and it produces steadfastness. This word steadfastness means endurance, perseverance, under mounting uh, demands, and resistance, this church is a remarkable church. It's made up of people who aren't just sitters, they're doers. They're not just going the second mile. They're going the third mile, the fourth mile. The the, the motto of this church might as well have have been, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, that's what we're going to do. To advance the gospel and advance the work of, uh, of the Lord... Whatever it takes, I'm all in. You can count on me until we get the work done. And, of course, the work will continue until the Lord returns. Years ago, Moody Monthly, which is what used to be a Christian magazine, um, produced an article on John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church. Um, I'll be there in a week and a half preaching. And they came out and interviewed the people. This was early in MacArthur's ministry there. And they came out really to do more of a piece on MacArthur. They ended up doing it on the church. 
And the title of the article was The Church with a Thousand Ministers. Because that church was like a beehive. Everyone had, had a responsibility. Everyone had an, had an oar in the water. Everyone had an assignment. And everyone was, was working and serving and doing. And the more they served the more, really, it was building up the body. And so I just want to encourage you, challenge you. I don't know what your input is into the life of this church, but I can promise you there are many needs that yet need to be fulfilled, and you have a place of service here. So they were a serving people. Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be the servant of all. For, I've come, for the Son of Man has come not to seek, not, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you want to be like Jesus? Then be a servant. Now, third, let's keep walking through this. I want you to note, not only were they a saved people and a serving people, they were a selected people. Everyone in this church who was in God the Father was so because they were chosen by God the Father. And so in verse 4, Paul does not hesitate to bring up the subject of sovereign election. And one thing I want to draw to your attention, please note here where this finds itself in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's the fourth verse. It's not hidden in the back of, the, uh, of this letter where Half the church won't even see it or read it. No, it's on the front doorstep. You can't even get into this letter without being immediately confronted with the doctrine of sovereign election. This was just such basic Christianity in the first century church that there was no other explanation even needed to be given. And it presupposes how much Paul had already preached on this subject when he was there before he was run out of town. So he says in verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now you may say, now wait a minute, I thought I chose the Lord. And the answer is, you did, but you only chose the Lord because he had previously chosen you. And it was his choice of you that is the cause. Your choice of him was the effect. His choice of you was the root. Your choice of him was the fruit. It was God's choice from before the foundation of the world. Those who would be His, that is what has caused their faith in Jesus Christ. Because everyone who is chosen by the Father for salvation from before the foundation of the world, God has also marked out the time and the place where they will be converted and where they will enter into the kingdom of God. And what's interesting here in verse 4, if you just pause with me for a moment and think about this, he says, knowing his choice of you. Paul actually knew who the elect were. How about that? After they were saved. And it was so obvious that they were saved. Why? Because of their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Paul sees the genuineness and the authenticity of their conversion to Christ 
and he knows to trace that stream or trace that river upstream to its source, he knows, well, it's obvious, then you're one of those who have been chosen by the Father from before the foundation of the world. Now, I said so much a year ago, last time on that subject, I feel like I can move on, but just know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this day, it is the result that God marked you out from before time began. He chose you and gave you to His Son and sent His Son into this world to redeem and rescue you. And God did so not because of you. He did so in spite of you. It's not because He just looked down the tunnel of time to see what you would do. If that's all it was, all He would see is that you were running away from God and running away from Him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. We were dead in trespasses and sin. No, it was far more than just this proverbial looking down the tunnel of time. No, it means foreordination, that God predestined their salvation, and it was obvious by the way they conducted their life. Now, verse 5. I want to hasten and come now to verse 5, because... I know what some think, and it's what I thought when I was first taught this when I was in seminary. I knew I was called to preach, and then I find out everyone's going to be saved. Then why am I studying Greek and Hebrew? Why am I killing myself if everyone who's going to be saved is going to be saved? In fact, why even preach the gospel at all? I don't know if you've ever had that thought or not, but it is the obvious question to ask if you're actually thinking this through. Well, not only has God appointed the end of all things, God has appointed the means to the accomplishment of all things. Do you understand what is being said? Not only has God appointed the salvation of the elect, but God has ordained all of the means to accomplish bringing the gospel to them. That includes prayer. That includes living a godly life. That includes loving unbelievers. But first and foremost, it includes the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we read here in verse 5. So look at verse 5 with me. It really is continuation of the same sentence. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Stop right there. It did come to them in word. It's just not in word only only. It wasn't just mere words that were coming out of the, the, Paul's mouth, but there was, there were some dynamics that were occurring as Paul preached the gospel. Notice, he goes on to say, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You see, It is God the Holy Spirit, understand this, it is God the Holy Spirit who takes the Word of God and brings it home to the hearts of the elect with sovereign, supernatural power that explodes in their heart 
in a way, it does not explode in someone else's heart who heard the very same sermon, who sat in the very same church service, and it was like water on a duck's back. But over here is one whom God has chosen. And that same sermon goes out, and it rings true in that heart, and it's like a fire alarm's going off. And you come under deep conviction of sin, and you must go to Jesus, and you must confess your sin, and you must be saved from the wrath of God to come, while over here, they're yawning. Over here, they're tapping their watch. Over here, they're hardly even paying attention. What's the difference? It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God who blows like the wind to bypass some and to invade the heart of someone else and to bring the gospel home with power that blows the doors off their heart and renders them humble before the Lord and in dire need of forgiveness of sin. That's what took place in Thessalonica. It was more than just Paul standing up to preach. God came to church. God came to that synagogue. And as Paul preached the Word of God, there was the the omnipotent Holy Spirit of God who came crashing into the hearts of the elect there that day. And they were dramatically born again. And those who were not the elect were no doubt some of those who rose up to throw Paul out of town and send him on his way. That's what always the preacher always has to face. That the people either love you or hate you. And the elect will love you. And the non-elect will rise up and want to run you out of town. Now, let me give you an illustration to help in our understanding of this. When the gospel was preached to you, you probably didn't know anything about the doctrine of election. I mean, you probably were not sitting around thinking, am I one of the elect or not? You you may not have even known what that even was. I didn't. I I I didn't even know that doctrine even existed. I was 17 years old. All I knew is verses like this. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It was almost like it was written over over the, the narrow gate leading into the kingdom of heaven. I knew I was certainly included among one of those whosoever. I knew I needed to be saved. I took that defining step of faith that summer night when I was 17 years old up in the mountains of Colorado and I went through that narrow gate and I was born again. It was a couple years later they began to teach me this truth in seminary. I initially rebelled against it. I turned around and looked at that door from the other side On one side it says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I went through it. I turned around, looked back at that same door, and it says, Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
All you need to know in evangelism is that people need to be saved. And you need to tell them, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And urge them to do so. But it's after they go through that door, they most probably finally come to the realization it's because on the other side of that door, it says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And I will harden the rest. What a glorious doctrine this is. God guarantees the success of the church. God himself guarantees the growth of the church by this doctrine of sovereign election. We need to keep working our way through this text. Not only were they a selected people, but number four, they were a sanctified people. And this follows logically after his statement on election because not only has God elected us for heaven, he's also elected us for holiness. All who are elected to heaven in the world to come are elected to holiness in this life. There is no one who is elect and is now in Christ that's living a godless life. That person has, does not exist on planet earth anywhere. All who are chosen for heaven are also chosen for holiness. And the elect are marked by their pursuit of holiness. So look at verse 6. You also, in other words, beyond just the election part, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. What a dramatic change of life took place with them. In fact, he will tell us later in verse 9 how they turned from idols to serve a living and, and true God. There was a dramatic change that took place in their life. And they immediately, previous, they were imitators of the world. Previously, they, they were imitating the godless people in society. They were being pressed into that mold. They were becoming just like everyone else in that godless city of 200,000 people in Thessalonica. But when the gospel came with power and dramatically converted them, they immediately became imitators of someone else. They became imitators of the Apostle Paul to the extent that the Apostle Paul is imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the mention here of imitators of us and of the Lord. Us and of the Lord. You see, this wasn't just a personality cult, everyone trying to be like Paul. Paul's following Christ. So in reality, for you to imitate Paul... It's for you to imitate Jesus Christ. You know what we call this? Discipleship. That there is someone who is out ahead of you in the Lord. Someone who knows more than you know. Someone who's living more than you know. Someone who is out ahead of you spiritually. Someone who is more mature than you. 
is having a direct influence upon your life. Everyone in this room needs someone like that. You need someone who is more mature than you, who is shaping and influencing your life. It's called discipleship. That's why Jesus said, follow me. And Paul was this one whom they were imitating because he had been right there. They saw how he lived. In fact, he says at the end of, at the end of, 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 of verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for, for your sake. But here's the key. Paul was following Christ. And Christ was being produced in Paul. Christ's likeness was being shaped in Paul. And so th- this is like this is like boxcars on a, on a train. They're following Paul. Paul is following Christ. So in reality, the Thessalonians are really following Christ, who's out ahead of this whole procession. And again, they are being radically changed. Let me give you a couple cross-references here. So, so d- don't lose me, okay? Hang with me. But I want you to hear these couple of cross-references because I want to stress how much you need to be discipled. I want to stress how much you need an older man or an older woman in your life to be influencing you and how much you need to be discipling someone downstream. Everyone needs a Paul and everyone needs a Timothy. Everyone needs a Paul who is, who is out ahead of you spiritually. You can't get there without that kind of influence. And you need to be pouring your life into someone who's downstream from you. But let me give you these cross-references right now. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. I exhort you, Paul says to the Corinthians, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me just as also I am of Christ. Philippians 3, 17. Brethren, join in following my example. Philippians 4, verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So, this presupposes for every one of us in this room that you're living such an exemplary life that you could say to whoever is downstream from you, follow me, live like me, pray like me, witness like me, resist the world like me, live for Christ like me. Your Christian life needs to be at that place where you could say to a young believer, you just imitate me, and things will be going well for you. And you need someone who's out ahead of you that you're, you're skiing in their wake. You, you're, you're, you're drafting behind their truck. That they're pulling you forward by the example and encouragement of their life that you would want to imitate what you see in their life that is genuinely Christ-like. Paul wasn't perfect, 
And that which was not perfect, they did not need to imitate. But that which was, and there was a lot there was, you need to imitate. In fact, this word imitate comes into the English language out of the Greek as mimic. Have you ever seen on television someone do an impression of, you know, John Wayne or President Trump or, you know, whoever? You just try to sound like that person, talk like that person, look like that person. That's the very same Greek word right here. Paul is saying, you need to mimic me. You need to pick up my accent. You need to sound like me as you live your Christian life. So, let's just keep looking here. He says, having received the word in much tribulation and with much joy of the Holy Spirit. Um, You know, it, it, it comes both ways. If you live in a godless culture, and let's just face it, we live in a godless culture. You're going to receive tribulation. First Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. When I went to Texas Tech 45 years ago, it was a cool thing to be a Christian. I got dates because I was a Christian. I did. It, 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 it puts you in a, in a popular place for people to know you're a Christian. Now you let people know you're a Christian? Someone has said it's either duck or pucker. It's either duck because someone's going to take a swing at you or pucker because they're a believer and they want to kiss you on the lips. But it's, it's duck or pecker. Duck or pucker, one of the two. So... I want it to be all pucker, <laughs> but that's just not reality. And the more this culture unravels like a cheap sweater, the more this tribulation is, is coming. And it will be the mark of a genuine believer that you're willing to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, he says in Macedonia, Macedonia was the, it was the northern province of Greece. It's where Thessalonica was and Achaia. That's the southern province. I I don't have time to comment on that anymore. But let's move on now to to verse 8 and 9. Not only were were they um, uh, a selected people, and not only were they... um, Oh, I can't even find my own notes. You'll have to look it up. Not only were they a sanctified people, but I want you to see they were a spiritual people. In verses 8 and 9, they were spiritually minded. He says in verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. That, that just covered all of Greece. It's pretty amazing that through the Thessalonians, the word of God has sounded forth to the whole nation. Sounded forth here means like a trumpet blast. It wasn't like a little soft, muted note. They, they gave a strong witness for the Lord, and they could do so because Thessalonica was a port city, and people getting on ships and going to other parts of, of, of Greece, what is today Greece and the Roman Empire, as well as the main highway ran right through Thessalonica. It was the capital city of the northern province. So businessmen are, are getting on ships, and businessmen are 
getting in, in wagons and carts and however they traveled, and wherever they went, the gospel is going, is being advanced with these businessmen as they travel throughout this whole part of the world. And when they show up, they're talking about Jesus. When they show up, they're giving a witness for Christ. And the Word of God is sounding forth from you. Notice it says, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone forth. So we have no need to say anything. This is unimaginable. Paul says to this church, I don't need to tell you to witness anymore because you're already witnessing to the full extent. I, I've, never, I've never known a church that that could be said of. I mean, we always need to witness more, don't we? <laughs> we always need to pray more, don't we? Paul says to this church, no, you're, you're witnessing enough. You've filled it up. I, I have nothing more to say to you about witnessing. I trust that this church is so on fire for the Lord with the reality of Jesus Christ that it could be said of you, you don't need to witness anymore. All of Midland already has heard from you about the gospel. All of Odessa has already heard from you about the gospel. All of La Mesa, all of wherever. I mean, you just fill it up. You're filling up the region with the gospel. What a challenge that is to all of us. Because I need to witness more. I think you probably need to witness more. The church of Thessalonica, they didn't need to witness anymore. Just keep doing what you're doing. Remarkable. Verse 9, for they... This is really remarkable too, here in verse 9. You, you, you've got to see this, and we'll wrap this up here in just a second. Verse 9, for they, and the they refers to those who heard the testimony of the Thessalonians, okay? These are the lost people, and I'm sure some other believers out there, but those who receive the witness of the Thessalonians, they themselves report about us, meaning Paul and Silas and Timothy, what kind of reception we had with you. So here's what's going, here's what verse 9 is saying. Follow the train of thought on this. Rather than Paul having to tell other people about what God did in the lives of the Thessalonians, before Paul can even open his mouth, these other people are telling Paul about what, the Thessalon what happened in the lives of the Thessalonians. The, the unbelievers are witnessing to Paul about what took place in the lives of the Thessalonians. That's how dynamic it was. And that's how much the Thessalonians were spreading this message of what God has done in me. That when Paul shows up in these other regions in Greece, these other people are telling Paul before he can even tell them what happened in the Thessalonians' lives. Wow, what a dynamic. And then he describes it at the end of verse 9 and how you turn to God from idols. 
I love that verse. You know why? You can't have it both. It's either or. Not both and. You choose. You have your idols or you have God. You can't have both. If you want God, you're going to have to flush those idols down the toilet. You're going to have to turn from them. You're going to have to burn them. You're going to have to get rid of them if you're going to turn to God. You're going to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You, you, you're going to have to burn your bridges behind you. That's what we call repentance. That you turn from your old manner of life. You turn from your old ways of sin. And you turn to God. And you do a 180, 180 degree turnaround. In our day, a homosexual church is a synagogue of Satan. You turn from your sin if you're going to have God, if you're going to have Christ. A church where people are trying to change their gender, all of the woke stuff that goes with this, you're going to have to decide. Are you going to cling to your idols and your former way of life where you get to call the shots for everything about your life? Or are you going to turn to God? And if you're going to turn to God, you can no longer have your former manner of life. You can no longer have your old way of living. You're going to go with God. And you're going to go in a new direction. And that is the mark of a genuine, true believer. And I tell you, it's true for everyone in this, in this room here today that when you were converted... If you have been converted, you were actually converted. You were changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So we all who are in Christ, have repented and been converted. And the path that we now walk is no longer the broad path that was headed for destruction. We're on a new path. It's a narrow path. It's headed in the total opposite direction. It's now headed to heaven. It doesn't mean we don't wrestle with sin. It doesn't mean that there may not be occasions that we relapse and fall back into a sin that we once had. But you know what? You won't enjoy it. You're going to feel awful. You're going to want to throw up the next morning. You're going to want to pull the hair out of your head. You're going to want to get on your knees and confess it to God and plead for forgiveness because you have a new nature now. And you now hate what you once loved. And you now love what you once hate, hated. That is the mark 
of general, genuine conversion. And if what I just said hurt anyone's feeling here today, I'm glad it did. And I hope it shakes you up to come to grips with the truth of the Word of God. You can't have the world and have Christ. If any man shall come after me, he must deny himself and take up a cross and follow after me. Well, I need to wrap this up. The last mark I want to put in front of you is in verse 10. A steadfast people. Uh, These people were so steadfast. And you know, and here's the deal. Before I even read this verse. There, there, There are a lot of churches that start with an explosion, but they don't persevere. They're not steadfast. They don't stay after it year after year after year. It's what makes today a very remarkable thing. That for 20 years, this church has not deviated its mission and its direction. And this church, for 20 years, has been doing God's work and has been patiently waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes back, as Spurgeon once said, he'll have no trouble finding me because I'll be standing at the foot of the cross. He'll know exactly where I am when he comes back. I'll be standing at the foot of the cross and preaching the glorious gospel of Christ and him crucified. Look at verse 10, steadfast, and to wait for his son from Heaven. Wait here means to wait steadfastly and expectantly, to, to hold their position while waiting, to not be moved from their position while they're waiting, to remain dressed in readiness, to wait with suspended, uh, sustained focus, to wait while faithfully doing God's will and God's work. They're, they're anchored. They're not going to be swayed by the changing of the culture. They're not going to be swayed by the changing of society. They're not going to be swayed by the changing of the morals of this world. No, they are waiting, they are anchored, they are positioned, and they are just waiting for Christ to come back. And until He comes back, we're going to keep doing the very same thing. Martin Luther said, on my calendar, I only have two days, today and that day, pointing to the time of Christ's return to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Listen, a dead Savior cannot save anyone. It's only a living Savior who can save, and a living Savior who can return. And He says, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. It's what salvation does. I I said in the Q&A, you asked me, what is the one attribute of God that is most in need being heard today? And I said, I know intellectually it ought, to be, um, it ought to be the holiness of God, and that would be the cure-all for everything. But I said what, what no one will talk about, no one will talk about from pulpits, is the wrath to come. And people just feel so uneasy, even hearing the word hell. Notice what this says in this verse. See it in your own Bible. 
who rescues us from the wrath to come. My friend, there is a gathering storm on the horizon that is ready to to break upon this world. We are a planet that is on a collision course with judgment. We are under the wrath of God. God has already wiped out the entire planet once at the flood, except for eight men. And we're far worse than what the world was when in the days of Noah. So we need to be saved. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. And this word for wrath simply means nostrils. It means, or it's, it's this, this word for wrath, excuse me, is orge. comes in the English language as an orgy, where there's all these, this heated emotion. God is heated with anger towards sinners. And the other word for wrath is nostrils, which means the heavy breathing of God. God's vengeance. Hear it. Wrath is coming. Hell is real and will be populated. The lake of fire and brimstone where there is the weeping and the gnashing of teeth where the worm never burns where there is eternal destruction. Jesus alone saves from the wrath to come. You and I live on a doomed planet. You and I live on a damned planet. And there is only one escape. And that is to believe in Jesus Christ. And if you've heard this sermon and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you die without Christ, hell cannot be hot enough for you. Because you have trampled underfoot the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been offered to you and you've despised it, you've trampled it underfoot, you've walked over it, and you have insulted the spirit of grace that has come into this world to testify to your heart that you're a sinner in need of salvation and of grace. You don't need to be saved from being single. You don't need to be saved from a bad marriage. You don't need to be saved from unemployment. You need to be saved from God. And the wrath to come. So if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, how could you possibly hear this and not embrace Christ before you even leave this building? 
Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Do you understand that hell's not the same for everyone? That there is greater punishment for some than for others? If you're going to go to hell, go to hell from Africa. If you're going to go to hell, go to hell from India where the gospel's not being preached. It will be a lesser punishment. But if you go to hell from Colonial Bible Church, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment, to quote Jesus, than from Colonial Bible Church. Because you have heard the truth. And so if you've never believed in Christ, you need to do business with God this moment. Because life is too short. Eternity is too long. Judgment's too real to neglect so great a salvation. This church is a lighthouse on the jagged shore of this part of the world. This church is sending out the light of the truth. Glory to God that there's a lighthouse in Midland, Texas. May God give you much success in all that you do. Take as many people to heaven with you as you can and let it start with your own family let us pray Father in heaven thank you for this church thank you for Christ thank you for the gospel Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you for everything that you have done to rescue us from the wrath to come. May you use this church to reach countless others. And may this church never resort to playing church. May this church always, with sincerity of heart, hold its place at the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.